Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, Psalms of Refuge. So turn to your Bibles to Psalm chapter 6, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Praying When Our Enemies Triumph. You might remember a time in David's life when after he had sinned, the prophet Gad was sent to him. There would be consequences that would come from David's sin. In short, David was supposed to choose what was behind door number one or door number two or door number three. I mean, which consequence did he want? Now, I don't want to go through that event now, but I do want you to remember, if you will, what was behind door number two. That option was that for three months, David's enemies would reap devastation on Israel. I mean, the thought of it, Paul David, in his prayer of repentance, he says to God, don't let me fall at the hands of my enemies. I don't want door number two. Let me fall into the hands of God, but not into the hands of evil men. And that's a thought that might seem strange to you. Can it possibly be that evil men, when assaulting the godly, sometimes are doing God's work? Is it possible that God would use wicked men to humble the godly and help the godly regain perspective? I wonder if even hearing things that way might cause you to react as David did. It's abhorrent that God will allow me to fall into the hands of my enemies and that God would use them to correct me. You know, it's been difficult for me to give a proper title to Psalm 6 because given what I've just said, you should know where this psalm is going. Psalm 6 is a psalm of David written in an unknown time in which his enemies had gained an advantage over him, and David experiences this as God's anger. And because of that, his health is severely affected. And if you're a modern-day counselor, and if David came to you saying, those very things, I have no doubt that many of you would poo-poo him. David, you would say, you need to accept yourself. You're a good man, and furthermore, when evil men do something to you, don't think for a moment that God's doing it. God loves you, and he would never use evil men to correct you. But of course, the modern-day counselor would be wrong. Too many modern-day counselors, sometimes even Christian ones, simply unthinkingly buy into the wisdom of the age. They discount sin. They overestimate human righteousness. They underestimate both the holiness of God and God's involvement in all things. And with that in mind, let's begin to read Psalm 6, Psalm of David, as his health is collapsing and he's terrified of God. Here are the first three verses. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? See, I find it fascinating that David begins this psalm, which is really a prayer with the words, rebuke me not in your anger. And notice it doesn't say, O God, don't rebuke me. You know, it affects my self-esteem, and then I don't feel as valuable, as important as as I truly am. And I say all of this so that we might understand that the issue here is that David assumes that God rebukes that God disciplines. Yeah, he uses the word discipline. God disciplines his children. We might have in mind Hebrews 12, verse 6 today, where we're told that God disciplines those he loves. He corrects all those who are his children. Like a good and loving heavenly father, he knows that if we're left undisciplined, we're going to lapse into ever-increasing sin, and God won't allow that. And for that reason, says Hebrews 12, God deliberately brings hardship into the lives of his children. 
Indeed, Hebrews 12 even goes further by telling us that if that's not what's happening to us, it's a sign that we don't belong to God in the first place. And David knows that. So he doesn't say, oh God, don't rebuke me. No, his opening request is more precise. Do not discipline me in your anger, he says. He wants correction to come to him in love. You know, it's the difference between being rebuked in love and being rebuked in anger. Now, notice also the Hebrew parallelism. You know, often in ancient Jewish poetry, the same thought would be expressed twice using different words to say the same thing. And so the parallel line is, don't discipline me in your wrath. And wrath is an interesting word. You know, it is about anger, but it's anger turned on strong, filled with emotional content. So let's not mistake this matter, shall we? David, when he prays this way, is not saying that he's not under grace. Look, he knows he's redeemed. He's God's man. And for us New Testament believers, we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But a rebuke and love are not opposites. Show me a parent who doesn't rebuke his or her son or daughter, and I'll show you a parent who shows contempt for his or her son or daughter. No, David is concerned that the rebuke that comes from God is more than he can bear. And notice his words, I'm languishing, he says. He means he's weak. He's about to collapse under the rebuke. He says, my bones are troubled. And so what does that mean? See, I think he means that the emotional strain he's feeling under God's correction is so great that he feels pain in his bones. Some have said that things like arthritis can be triggered by very stressful emotional circumstances. Well, whatever David was feeling in his body, it left him racked with pain. And then finally, he adds, my soul is greatly troubled. And Martin Luther, when he was commenting on this verse, thought that David was overwhelmed by temptations and the kind of temptations that come upon someone when they feel as if God has abandoned them. You know, some of you hearing this description of David, well, now you're shocked by what you're reading. I mean, how can a man of God be going through that? But others of you are reading this and you're not shocked at all. You know that the life of pursuing holiness and the life of overcoming sin is a very difficult pathway indeed, in which a person can feel overcome by the darkness inside of themselves and also the sure knowledge that God will not bypass sin in the lives of his saints. Would you notice the last part of verse 3? David says, but you, O Lord, how long? So does that sound familiar? Do you remember Jesus' prayer from the cross? Why have you forsaken me? He prays. And behind that prayer is the question of length. How long will this being forsaken by God for the sins of the world last? Jesus was being crushed and he cries out to God. Of course, Jesus does something on the cross that, that we can't repeat. He had no sin. Rather, he took upon himself our sin. And it was there that he paid for our sin. And so when we cry out how long, we shouldn't imagine that if we suffer long enough for our sins, well, now they're paid for. No, that would be heresy. Jesus suffered for our sins, but our suffering is so that we will gain a distaste for sin, so that we'd stop loving it and begin to hate it. And so we might ask, how long will I need to be rebuked until I gain a healthy distaste for sin? How long until I begin to hate sin? And that picture then opens this psalm. From that opening picture then comes David's earnest plea to God. And so let's read that in verses 4 and 5. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. 
Save me for the sake of your steadfast love, for in death there is no remembrance of you in Sheol who will give you praise. So it's clear to see that David felt that he was very close to dying. But verse 5 is puzzling. Did David think that if he died, that was it? You might be aware that there are those theologians who argue exactly that. They're going to say that the Old Testament saints had very little idea of what would happen to them after the grave. Now, I'm going to say that's not the case. So why do I say that? Well, for one, because David himself in other Psalms says the opposite. So Psalm 16, 10 and 11, it's a Psalm of David, and it says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See? Or we might think of Psalm 23, and David says, I will not fear even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And then he later adds, he knows that in the end he will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's not just David who thinks this way. We might think of Job in the Old Testament languishing in his illness when he says, even after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Or we might think of Isaiah in Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. And so it is patently untrue to say that either David or the Old Testament saints had no hope in the resurrection of the dead. Surely they didn't have the clarity of the New Testament, but they still did have a hope of being in the presence of God after they died. Daniel said so in Daniel 12 too. He said, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So given that reality, and this hope is found even in the Old Testament, we're left to ask, well, what did David mean when he said, in death there is no remembrance of you? Was that a temporary lapse of his faith? Had he just forgotten his hope? Now, if that's what he's saying, we might say, well, I can identify with that. I sometimes lose my hope as well. But I don't think David is saying that. So what does he mean when he says, in death there's no remembrance of you? As time speeds by, it's even more important that we consider how we live. That's why I'm so grateful for friends like you who walk with us verse by verse through the Bible. The encouragement we received recently from Ruth reminds us of how precious this is. Dr. John's teachings are fascinating and really bring the Bible to life for me. I can almost visualize the scenes in my mind like watching a movie when I listen to him. I usually listen to the radio program at work and end up going home and rereading the passage you spoke about that day. And every time, I see it through different eyes. What a great way to use the time we've been given. With minds transformed by the washing of God's Word, we're given different eyes and God's own heart to see the world we live in. If you'd like to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at one 800 663 2425. Now, clearly, David doesn't understand what Paul would later understand in Philippians, where he would say, To depart and be with Christ is better by far. There is for David still a mystery as to what happens at the point of death. 
Yeah, David does understand there's a hope beyond the grave. Indeed, he also understands, to some extent, the resurrection of the body. So what does he mean when he says, in death there's no remembrance of you? Well, David often made it clear how he loved to praise God on earth, in the tabernacle, among the company of the living, and so forth. He knows there's a resurrection, but he also knows his days of worship on earth are coming to an end. And so he thinks of his sin and of God's rebuke and of his declining health in his body. And he says, I'll never praise you on earth again. Now, have you ever felt that way? You know, years ago, I had a very dear old friend and he had been diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. He first noticed that when his speech began to slur. And as the diagnosis came in, he asked me to pray with him. He said, I just never want to be in the place where I can't sing in church. I want to pray and praise there. Ask God that he would never take away this ability. And yet over time, that ability did come to an end. And I think that's what David is expressing here. Will your rebuke, O God, be so severe that my days of worshiping you on this earth come to an end? And that's quite a thought. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says that some of God's people had partaken of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, and consequently they died. See, he didn't say they went to hell. He simply said that God was displeased with them and brought their lives to an end, even while I think in their case, their sins had been atoned for by the blood of Christ. See, for those of us who have sinned against God and have suffered the rebuke of God, it is those thoughts that might swirl about in our minds, oh God, will this bring my days to an end? You see how shocking this psalm is. So let's continue to read lest our thoughts become too oppressed. I'm now at verses six and seven. I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. So when David says he's weary with his moaning, we have to imagine the dark valley that's lasted so long. He's tired of suffering now. I think we can understand that. But David says that his weariness of his suffering has drenched his couch with weeping. I don't think we should take it literally. You know, his couch isn't completely drenched, but it's an image. I've lain on my couch and I've wept so much that my eyes have lost their luster. And all the while, this is such an important line. It says it's because of his foes. Now, we're not told what his foes have done. But if the foes had known the damage that they were doing to David, they wouldn't have stopped and said, it's enough now. Instead, they would have sensed their advantage and they'd have poured it on until they had completely destroyed him. See, at this point, it would seem the psalm is getting even darker. We return back to what was said at the beginning. Can it be that God would use enemies of David to discipline him so that the sins that had once seemed so cavalier to him now seemed to be what they truly were. Are the enemies to continue to weaken him until he's descended to the grave? And at this point, the psalm doesn't get any darker. Instead, David finds hope at this moment. Suddenly in the darkness, there's a mood change. Verses 8 to 10. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. I hope you hear those marvelous words. The Lord has heard my weeping. Unlike his enemies who rejoice at the thought of his demise, David is sure that God's not one of them. 
He knows that God's heart is moved with compassion at the suffering of his children. Now, in order for us to understand that thought, let's think about the book of Lamentations. If you don't know what that book is all about, let me explain. Lamentations is a short book in the Old Testament. It's just five chapters long. It was written by the prophet Jeremiah, and it was written after the Babylonians, who were the enemies of Israel. They had defeated the city of Jerusalem. They'd burned the temple of the Lord to the ground. They'd slaughtered young and old alike in the city. And they'd taken a great company of Israel into exile into Babylon. Jeremiah saw that with his own eyes. Now you know why the book is called Lamentations. It's a lament. But Jeremiah also knew that these events happened because the people of Israel had refused to repent. They insisted on carrying on in their sins, and God then threatened them, but even then they wouldn't take the threat seriously. Then came the disaster. So bearing that in mind, let's read some portions from the book. And I'm reading here Lamentations 3, 31 to 33, and it says, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. See, he does not afflict from his heart. That is, should God cause grief to come into the lives of his chosen ones, God doesn't rub his hands in glee. It grieves his heart. He's moved with feelings of love and compassion towards his children. By the way, if you see God disciplining one of his children, don't you dare join him in this, in heaping additional scorn and hurtful gossip on them. See, at that very moment, you're persecuting the one that God loves, and you may arouse his anger against you. See, David is our example here. For those who are being disciplined by God through whatever hardship they're experiencing, it's important to learn from him. We must never think that God has abandoned us when we weep and cry out, God who loves us hears our prayers. He's near to the burdened and the hurting. He will not abandon his children. See, the thing we notice here is that David is not only assured that God has heard his plea, but that God has answered his plea. He says he accepts my prayer. God's moved to act on David's behalf and to deliver him from his enemies. Again, I make the point that must be remembered. If you are used by the hand of God to bring the rebuke of God to someone else, beware. When God has finished his rebuke, he may hear the prayer of the righteous and the godly, and he will be aroused against you. Beware. Now, that's in verse 9. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. But now look at the two verses that surround verse 9. Verse 8, depart from me, all you workers of evil. That is, the prayer that God will accept is that he will remove the influence of the workers of evil from the righteous. The time will come when their power to harm is going to be broken. And we get that from the Old Testament on a macro level. You know, after God had finished using Babylon to chasten Israel, God then turned and destroyed Babylon utterly. They never rose again. Now, that may also be true in the micro level or on the personal level. David's prayer in verse 8 that the workers of evil would depart from him means that he is sure that God will break their access into his life. You know, some of us reading this might wonder, you know, is there forgiveness in David? I mean, didn't Jesus teach us to love our enemies and to do good to those who persecute us? Well, yeah, he did. And it's important. But sometimes when we hear these commands of Jesus, we jump to unwarranted conclusions. See, there's a difference between forgiveness and showing love and reconciliation. 
Reconciliation implies that the evildoer has confessed his or her sins, seeks forgiveness from the person he has wronged. See, when reconciliation happens, it's a great work of grace. Relationships are healed. Friendships are restored. Marriages that seem to be dead are brought back to life. That's a miracle of God's grace. But where the evildoer seeks no forgiveness, the saint of God can still forgive. We don't seek vengeance. Indeed, whenever it is in the saint's power, the saint must indeed do the work of love. But still, the saint can pray with David, depart from me, workers of evil. That is to say, the door of a further relationship is blocked. The battered woman is not to go back to her abuser. She can forgive him, but she can't reconcile unless there's genuine repentance and fruit of repentance. So much could be said here. But we must draw this matter to a close. See, David knows that God may have used his enemies to discipline him, but he also knows, according to verse 10, that the day will come when his enemies are put to shame. Indeed, God does not discipline the one he loves in order to destroy that one. He will deliver them from their enemies, for his heart is moved with compassion. Is that hope for you? Yes! Have your sins caused your own suffering? Well, if they have, do you think that God is done with you? No, he is not. God is moved with love towards you, and he will deliver you, and he will persecute those who persecute you. Have hope, be strong in the Lord. Thanks so much, John. You know, I think we're hearing a life lesson today that we can expect the actions of our enemies to be used by God to correct us or to discipline us. Yeah, I want to be very careful when I say that, and and I perhaps should have said it more clearly, um, that not every difficulty is because God is correcting us. Um, However, uh, we should view all discipline as God working in our lives uh, to bring about a change of attitude. And so, I think it's alarming for some to think that God might even use our enemies in that fashion, but he's not using our enemies. If that's what's happening to you, he's not using the enemies to show that your enemies are righteous and that you are unrighteous. He is rather using that so that your sense of dependency upon him would be greater and that your abhorrence of sin would be greater. So a God who loves you is taking you through that. He's not rejecting you. Keep it in mind. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Psalms of Refuge, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. This month, don't forget to ask for the Time of Your Life five-message Bible teaching series as our free Bible resource on CD. As you listen along and examine what the Bible has to say about how we use the time you've been given, you'll be equipped and encouraged to make your days matter for eternity. When you request your copy of The Time of Your Life, would you pray for more and more people to access these life-transforming riches in the pages of the Bible? Every day this teaching, verse by verse, reaches out across Canada and around the world on radio and print and online so that all might receive and experience a life filled with purpose. Back to the Bible Canada is so grateful for your support. To order the time of your life or make a gift to support this ministry, 
call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.